chapter 8, and we are starting to read at verse 26. It says, And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him, and when he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. Or we might say they were drowned. And when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I want to draw your attention to the last part of verse 35 where it says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind let's pray father we thank you for your word this morning we thank you for the anointing we feel in your house today lord god and we know that when your children gather together lord god that you have a purpose that you have a will that there are things that you desire would be in our midst and so lord i pray that our faith this morning would be mingled with your word that it would release your power that it would achieve your purpose, Lord God, we pray. We ask you for your anointing upon this vessel, Lord God, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. The condition of this man must have been terrifying for the people in the country of the Gadarenes. His reputation would have spread very, very quickly. And knowing what people can be like, it would have been exaggerated even beyond the already tragic state that he was in. People have a way of making things bigger and stronger and more sensational. But the scripture, if you read the account here in Luke and also in Mark, tells us this man was possessed of many devils, that he was naked, living among the tombs, and unable to be restrained with earthly restraints. They would put chains upon him and he would just pluck them asunder due to the unnatural strength that the demon possession gave to him both night and day this man wandered through the mountains and the countryside crying out and cutting himself with stones but when jesus delivered this man from the demons that tormented him the conclusion of the story is that he was seated at the feet of jesus clothed and in his right mind. And I want to minister to you this morning about being in the right mind. Being in the right mind. The human mind is an incredible thing. It really is. And to 
to suggest that the human mind is, is the product of random evolution over thousands of years is really, when you think about it, offensive to the glory of God, considering that he made man in his own image. In the image of God we are made. See, for it is our minds that house so much of that image. It is within the human mind that the capacity for rational thought, for creativity, for emotions, for personality, the control center for much of our natural function resides in our mind. There are things that we do naturally every single day that just, as far as we are conscious of, they just happen. We don't think about them. We can think about them, but we don't constantly. If I asked you all to look at me and blink at me this morning... You could all do that. You could have, hopefully have the control of your body to blink your eyes, and yet you don't think about blinking every time you blink. You're not constantly reminding yourself, blink, blink, blink. Because, in fact, they suggest that you blink something like 25 to 30,000 times a day. You imagine if you had to control that manually. Every time, blink, blink. But such is the awesomeness of the mind that God has given us, that that control center takes care of those things. We don't have to worry about them. In fact, if I, in my mind, I decide to walk from one side of the platform to the other, as soon as I make that decision, that system kicks in. I'm not going, all right, left foot, right foot, left foot. My my body just knows how to do it because that's the way that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the way that our minds are. And when some of these natural functions... Sorry, but my left limbs are driving me nuts. When some of the natural functions of the mind do not work as they should, it can be a product of mental illness. And we are living in a time where there is more understanding of mental illness than ever before. And although treatments are advancing, it is still an area where we know so very little about how it all works. And I think all of us, I'm confident today to say that all of us are acquainted with somebody that suffers from some form of mental illness, a family member, a friend, or an associate. And I am in no way knowledgeable on the subject, and so any remarks that I make this morning are general in nature and certainly do not want to be misinterpreted as being insensitive. In fact, mental illness is not really the focus of my message, but I'm using a natural example to preach a spiritual principle. Mental illness in a simple definition is a health condition that involves changes in thinking, emotion, and behavior. The causes of it in this list is not necessarily complete because a lot of it's still very unknown. But some of the causes include genetic factors, biological factors, psychological and environmental factors or things that happen around about us or to us. And uh, I would suggest from our opening text in Luke chapter 8 that there can also be spiritual factors that can be contributing to this. And I want to say very, very clearly, I do not want to be misunderstood. I do not believe, nor am I stating that mental illness is always a product of a spiritual situation. I I believe that would be simplistic and inaccurate, and it's much more complex than that. But it is true that when people are possessed or oppressed by evil spirits, that sometimes in the secular knowledge of the world, they will be diagnosed as having a mental illness. 
because no matter how brilliant a medical doctor may be, they may be completely ignorant of the spiritual realm, of the fact that we are very much spiritual creatures that have bodies, not bodies that have spirits. We are spiritual creatures that have bodies. And some of you, if you've been around a little while, you may have read the story of a missionary to Mexico many years ago by the name of Bill Drost. And uh, if you haven't heard of him, I'm just showing my age, which is okay. But Brother Drost, for whatever reason, went to a, a, a mental facility. And one day, for some reason, he had to go there. He'd never, ever been there before in his life. And when he went into that place where these people were being treated and where they resided, a group of the patients surrounded him in a circle and held hands and began to chant, Bill Drost, the Pentecost. Bill Drost, the Pentecost. Now, there was something about them that recognized something about him. In fact, in a much more contemporary example, I know a man who pastors one of our churches on the East Coast whose profession is that he is a psychiatric nurse. And so he works with people that have a lot of mental illnesses. And again, they come from many different sources. But he has told me that there have been times when he's at work where a patient may approach him from behind and just stand next to him and say, we know who you are. Which is a little bit freaky. But see, he is filled with the Spirit of God. And he said that his response is, that's okay, I know who you are as well. See, there, there's a lot of things that can affect the human mind. And the, the fact that it is so incredible is the reason why we struggle to understand so much of it. Amen. And I am nowhere even remotely close to qualified to venture into that area. But I want to, for the sake of building a platform this morning, speak for a couple of minutes. We'll get to some Bible later, so you don't accuse me of not preaching the Scripture. But I want to speak about a couple of men that figured very prominently in my childhood who developed a form of mental illness and bring a comparison for a reason. The first one is somebody that quite a few of us know here, and that's Brother Glass. Brother Glass developed a condition that affects his mind in such a way that the control center that I spoke about before doesn't function properly and is gradually getting worse. So things such as balance, movement, even blinking. He's had to have surgery on his eyelids. Blinking, um, speech. A lot of these things are incredibly difficult, if not impossible. And uh, if you've seen Brother Glass recently, you will know that he's basically confined to a wheelchair and needs assistance with many of the things that we consider easy functions of the day. And even though this is the case, the part of his mind that contains his persona or his personality, the who he is, the... The, the thoughts, the, the tastes, the sense of humor, the likes, the dislikes, that is largely unaffected. He still has all of those abilities. And when you struggle to work out, to communicate with him, you find that that is all still very much functional. But the frame that houses that mind is not functioning because of whatever's happened to his control center. In fact, his sense of humor hasn't changed. And even if you can't talk to him, those of you that know Brother Glass... If you get up from the table and kick your leg on the kick your toe on the leg of the table, he might not speak, but he's still going to laugh at you. He hasn't changed. It's still very much who he is. 
and love that man very dearly and uh, cannot even begin to emphasize the role he's played in my life. So there are, his particular condition affects what we might call his physical identity, but it doesn't so much affect his emotional or his personal identity. Almost in a seemingly opposite case, my uncle John, who I grew up with, I was very close to all of my childhood because he lived very close to my parents and his close friendship, sorry, my close friendship with his son meant that he often seemed to have an extra son to take to cricket or soccer or fishing or to visit our grandparents. And he was a very, very kind man. He was a brilliant man. He had quite a few degrees and a lot of qualifications. Brother Gavin actually worked with him for a period of time, I believe. But there came a time in my uncle's life when he started to do some things that were a little bit odd. It didn't seem quite right. And through the process of tests and whatnot, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the condition was almost the opposite of what happened to Brother Glass. Because you see, the control center part of my uncle's mind, his walking, balance, breathing, and those things, wasn't affected at all until much later on. In fact, the irony of his illness was that during his illness, he was physically fitter than I had ever seen him in my life. Growing up, he was not a very tall man. He was quite a, a heavy man, wasn't an athlete. If you asked him, he used to tell you that he was built for comfort, not speed. He was quite rotund. But when he developed this illness, my aunt put him on a very strict diet. She monitored what he ate very closely. And one of the, uh, I don't know if side effect is the right word, but one of the things that often happens with that particular illness is he began to pace up and down the house. He wouldn't sit. He would pace for hours at a time. So he suddenly was on a healthy diet and doing more exercise than he'd ever done. And so even though he had this illness, he was trim and fit. And if you walked past him and didn't know him, and it was you casually passed the man on the street, you would know that you wouldn't think anything was wrong. It was almost the reverse of what happened with Brother Glass. One's, one's personality side of his mind was still there, but his body was shutting down. The other one, his body was in better shape than it had ever been, but his personality began to fade to a point where he didn't recognize friends and family anymore where in the process of that insecurity, a man who was one of the most gentle people that I ever knew became aggressive towards family members that he failed to recognize. What is, what is my point this morning? Where, where am I going with this? If you'll take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 1. And just hold that there. We'll get to that in a minute. If you're visiting with us, this message may be a little unusual for a visitor's message. I'd encourage you to come back tonight. Brother Gavin's preaching. He's much nicer than I am. So you can, he can, you can listen to him tonight. But the Bible actually, when you look into it, has quite a lot to say about the mind. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it warns us, of the dangers of a carnal mind. And you don't need to turn to these, just hold on to Philippians 1. It warns us about the dangers of a carnal mind or a mind that is dictated to by a sinful nature whose primary motive for every choice and action is what I want. 
what makes me feel good, what brings me pleasure, what satisfies my desires. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 states that that kind of a mind is not just slightly out of balance with God, but in fact it's enmity or it's a strong hatred and an opposition to the things of God cannot be subject to the law of God. And so we are warned about having a carnal mind. It also tells us in Romans chapter 1 that that the depravity of mankind can lead us down to a pathway where we can end up with a reprobate mind or a mind that has rejected God completely and is unrestrained from sin in any way. And Scripture also speaks in in a more positive application of having a willing mind or a ready mind, ready to do those things which we know we ought to do. And it also warns us that the vanity or emptiness of our own minds should not be what guides our steps, but rather it should be the word of the Lord. We are exhorted in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2 not to be shaken in our minds. In other words, don't become agitated and insecure by what goes on around about us and the things that happen in our lives, but to trust the Lord that the day of Christ is at hand. Amen. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, I'll read this one. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Loins speaks of power and reproduction. And the girding up speaks of a practice in ancient times where the long garments would be gathered and tucked into their, their what we would call a belt, they would call a girdle, and those flowing garments were tucked out of the way so that they could run or they could work or they could fight without becoming hindered or tangled up. And so the warning that Peter gives us is don't become tangled up with the junk that you produce in the power of your own mind because it will tangle you and it will trip you and you will lose the battle because of what you produce, not what is produced around about you. Romans 12 and 2 tells us that our minds need to be renewed or made new. And you look into the meaning of that word, it includes the idea of renovation. You ever think about renovating? I mean, there's all sorts of programs now that focus on people renovating properties. But it wouldn't hurt some of us to knock down some walls and to hang some new curtains and give our minds a fresh coat of paint. Amen. And be renewed in our minds. There's more in the, about the mind in the scripture than sometimes we realize. But at least 10 times, at least 10, it was early and I was having trouble counting. At least 10 times the New Testament instructs us to have the same mind or to be of one mind or to mind the same thing. Amen. It's not talking about mind control or being brainwashed into some kind of scary, terrifying cult. But it's letting us know that there is a mind or a mindset or a way of thinking that is appropriate for the church, that is appropriate for all those that are believers. And it's very easy, and I have no problem with us saying amen, and that's right, and we should be of one mind because we should. But the problem is that when we say amen, subconsciously we think that one mind that we should all have happens to be ours. 
That's what we have. That's the undercurrent. Yeah, that's right. We should all have one mind. You guys should be thinking like me. This world would be a better place if we all thought like I thought. We all want unity in working together, as long as that unity is based around our point of view and we're working together the way we think it should happen. Amen. Paul spoke about some of the things in, first, in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians 1, he spoke about some of the things he was going through, the battles, the challenges he faced. He also spoke of how for him to be in this life or in the next, he said, if I'm absent from this life, I'm with the Lord. He wasn't really worried about what happened to him in this earthly life. He was more worried about what he did while he had this earthly life and what was happening in the churches that he had planted and that he was ministering to and trying to disciple. And he spoke about being ready to see the Lord. But if you read the first part of Philippians chapter 1, you'll see that. Then he continues on in that same vein in verse 27 of Philippians 1. He says, only let your conversation... That word in the King James is talking about your lifestyle, your conduct. But you can include the things you say as well. Just don't exclude your conduct. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that which is appropriate, suitable for the gospel. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, for the faith of the gospel. And verse 28 says, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul tells them, don't be terrified by opposition. When you face trial, when you face trouble, and you stay faithful, your faithfulness actually condemns the enemy. It's a token that can, when we hold our ground and we hold our course, it condemns the enemy and it speaks of our salvation. And I read somewhere the other day, and I think it's a powerful statement, that perhaps the greatest act of faith is simply faithfulness. Faithfulness. And then Paul said, in such a lovely, fantastic, positive fashion, that we would have some suffering and some conflict just like he did. That we would share in his ministry. That we would not only be able to believe on Christ, but that we would suffer for his sake. And then if you ignore the chapter break, which is a good way to read scripture... It reads on in verse 1 of chapter 2 and says, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, and when you read that bowels in the King James, it's talking about deep feeling. It's not talking about your anatomy. He said, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man to his own things, but every man also to the things of others. So continuing in the thought that Paul has already addressed, 
He writes to the Philippian church who are going to go through, if they're not in a trial, they've got some coming. He says, if you're in trial and conflict, he said, comfort during that time is found when saints stay in one mind and one accord and keep, he said, keep the same love. He said, if we're going to go through some junk, and we will, he said, there is comfort when we stand together, when we walk together, when we serve together, when we're still doing things for the same reason, for the same God, for the same motive that we got into this thing in the first place, and that we have the same love in our midst. That's what he said. He said that as long as we wouldn't be concerned with our own vain glory, or in other words, what we want and what satisfies and promotes us, but that we would esteem each other higher than our own selves. And so if more than ten times in the New Testament we are encouraged to have one mind or the same mind, which mind is that? I'm glad you asked because it's in the next verse. In verse 5, after all this encouragement to have that one mind and the same mind, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Paul said, Jesus knew very clearly who he was. Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery, robbery to be equal with God. He had no confusion about who he was. He knew that he was God manifest in the flesh. He knew who he was. He was confident when he made statements like, before Abraham was, I am. He had no problem claiming in roughly 30 to 33 AD that he was the same God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. There was no identity crisis in Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. He knew the worship that he deserved. But it says, but, in verse 7, but made himself of no reputation. You study that original Greek there, it talks about emptying himself putting aside what he deserved, what was right, what belonged to him, and making himself a servant in the likeness of his own creation and humbling himself unto death. Jesus knew very, very clearly who he was. Yet he did not appeal to his identity or to his rights in the midst of overwhelming unfair treatment that he received at the hands of his brethren. His brethren. The Bible says he came unto his own. They weren't strangers. They were his people. They didn't recognize him, but they were the people that belonged to him because he was the one that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was the one that entered into a covenant with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the 12 tribes and took that smallest of nations and made them the dominant power in the known world. They were his people. He came unto his own. And the Bible says his own received him not. But when you back it up to verse 5, as sobering as that is, it says, let this mind be in you. So when the scripture says that we are, I'm going to hammer this this morning in case you haven't picked that up. 
when the scripture says that we are to be in one mind, what mind is that? Let this mind be in you. That even though he knew who he was, and he knew that it was unfair, and he knew he didn't deserve it, he took it anyway at the hands of his brethren, not strangers, his brethren, submitted himself, put his flesh to death, that he might experience the power of the resurrection, and that he might give that to us as well. You see, if you want the power of the resurrection in your life, it comes via Calvary. You don't have to be a genius to understand that you can't be raised again if you've not died. You can't bring somebody back to life who is already alive. If I was to grab Steve and lay him across the floor and start doing chest compressions, and, and I don't even want to think about doing mouth-to-mouth research, Steve. I'm sorry, but... But the thing is, Steve's already alive. doesn't matter how many of those things I try to do, he's already alive. Can't bring him back to life. But if he was tragically dead, I'd pray for you, Steve. Then you can bring somebody back to life. And if I want the power of his resurrection, I've got to stop at the cross find myself in a tomb, and then I can be risen again. But too often we want the power, but we don't want the tomb. We want the glory, but we don't want the grizzly. If you want the power, there's only one pathway. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The scripture says that he is the head. And that we are the body. And if something in us interferes with the relationship between the head and the body, there's no problem with that mind, let me tell you. His mind is perfect. But if something in us interferes with that relationship, we'll experience dysfunction in our bodies as well. We might look like we're walking okay, but there's no identity. We need to be willing to be submitted to the head. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. It's a very well-known passage of Scripture, Matthew 18 and 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And just in case, let me digress for a moment, just in case anybody's sitting there thinking that I'm targeting this subject because of situations. I got this at about one o'clock this morning. So if it was going to be targeted, I would have done it during the day, during the week, not at one o'clock in the morning. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Which in natural thinking was pretty generous. But Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And Peter didn't have much to say after that. Because then the Lord begins to share a story. And I'm just going to paraphrase it for the sake of time. But he said there was a king that had all these servants and he was just 
doing his books, basically, and found out that there was a man in his kingdom that owed, owed him a vast amount of money, massive amount of money that he could never pay back. And when he called the man in and he said, this is your debt, have you got the money? And the man didn't have the money. He said, well, you're going into prison. I'm going to take everything you own. I'm going to throw you into prison. And the man begged for mercy. And the king, in a moment of mercy and grace that the man did not deserve, wiped the slate and said that, billion dollar debt however you want to work out today's value it's gone i sometimes wish that the bank would ring me up and say you know that mortgage you have in a moment of madness the ceo has decided to erase your mortgage i'm not really holding out for that but but this man stood there he didn't have any defense. He didn't have a purpose. He didn't have a reason. He didn't have a, an argument in his defense. He just begged for mercy. And the king gave it to him. And the Bible says that he went out from the king's presence and found another man who owed him a smaller amount of money. It's almost the same situation, but the roles are reversed. Instead of being the servant, he becomes the king because now he's in the power. He has the power because this other man is his debtor. And he says, you owe me, I think it's 50 pence or something like that. And the man says almost, when you read the, the story, it's almost, it's almost like the verse has been copied and pasted. Because he says almost the same things. If you give me time, if you give me, you know, I'll get it back to you. But the scripture says that he took this man by the throat. That's what it says. Took him by the throat and said, if you don't give me that money right now, you're going into the slammer until it's all paid. And the word that... The, the moral or the principle to the story is that the word got back to the king. And the king called the servant back in and he said, didn't I just forgive you a billion dollar debt? But now I'm hearing that you went out and took this man who owed you such a small amount by the throat and had him thrown into prison. And the king reinstated the debt. That'd be like the bank ringing me back a week later and say, we made a mistake. Your mortgage payments start again tomorrow. He reinstated the man's debt. And he went into prison for the... Because the thing is, there was no natural way he could ever pay that debt. The other man's debt could have been paid because it was small. But that massive debt, it did not matter how hard he worked, whatever he sold, he could not... It was an impossible debt to repay. And it was reinstated. And what he did not realize was that as he took his friend by the throat, he took his own forgiveness by the throat as well. And as he applied pressure to one source, he strangled it out of the other. And so the forgiveness that he withheld became the forgiveness that he had withdrawn. And the, there's a lot of lessons in this. The first one is he didn't comprehend how much his debt was to start with. Because he told the king, if you give me some time, I'll pay it back. He needed a hundred lifetimes to pay that debt back. He didn't comprehend the magnitude of his own sin. And in forgetting that, he justified his grievance with his brother. When you walk with God, over a period of time, and any of you that have walked with the Lord for some time will identify with this. One of the things that makes a relationship with God rich 
is that when you look back, you see time and time and time again when he has forgiven you and he has restored you and he has forgiven you and he has restored you and he has forgiven you and he has restored you. And if you're honest, you can look back and see the same thing again and again and again. And yet every time I do it, let's personalize this, let's make this about me. Every time I make that same mistake, do that same thing, fall short in that same fashion and come back to him, he offers me forgiveness, he offers me grace, and he just, you know what justification is? Somebody said, this is a little bit of a cute play on words, somebody said that justification is just as if you'd never done it. But it's more than that, it's also just as if I'd always been faithful. And so when he forgives me today for something that I've struggled with for 20 years, the forgiveness and the grace I receive today is as if it was the very first time I've ever come to him. And that is one of the things that makes my relationship with him so rich. Because when I think about that, and I understand that he does not owe me anything, and yet he gives me everything, that makes me want to love him more. That makes me want to appreciate him more, to worship him more, to be more of what he wants me to be. Because I recognize the precious nature of his repeated and ongoing mercy and forgiveness in my life. And that makes my relationship with him precious. Why would we think that the same principle doesn't apply in the horizontal plane? If we walk with God, we walk with people. The two are inseparable. And if you're going to serve God for a long time with your brother and sister, you're going to have a multitude of opportunities to offend each other. Come here, Brother Gavin. I won't offend you. No, not really. Up here in the hot spot. This young man, he's still younger than me, so I can call him a young man. We've known each other and gone to church together since I was seven. And Gav was about four. What's the difference between you and me? Three or four years? Something like that. That's a long time. The trees were small back then. Now, the Lord took me out of Townsville for a while because he knew Brother Gavin needed a break. But then he brought us back together again. And we've had multiple opportunities through those years to hurt each other's feelings. We have. And I'm not being self-deprecating when I say this. I know without a fact... I've hurt his more than he's hurt mine because that's more my personality than his. Having said that, he is only, he's one of only two people that has ever given me a black eye. The other one was a girl. But that's a story for another time, but that's the truth. It was an accident. He didn't mean to give me a black eye. But we've had many opportunities to offend each other. But, you know, I love this man and I know he loves me. And part of that is because through all of those years, we get over some junk. You can sit down, boy, thank And the ability, or rather, it's not an ability. It's God that gives the ability. When God enables us to forgive one another, that actually makes our relationship 
better lets it make that relationship better. But for some reason, we fall into the trap of putting the two in two different categories. They're not. They're inseparable. They can't be separated. It's impossible. Amen. In the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when the Israelites walked in the wilderness and they had no food, the Bible says that God provided them with manna, which is still a little bit hard to understand exactly what that was. It's sort of called angel's food. It sort of came down on the ground in the morning and looked a bit like this and tasted a bit like that and still don't really have a clue what it was. But they, they gathered that every day. Every day. They didn't deserve it. In fact, they probably didn't deserve much at all. But every morning when they got up, it was fresh on the grass. And they gathered it up and it got them through that day. And the law was, you didn't take extra in case it was short tomorrow. You trusted God that what would be on the turf tomorrow morning would be enough for tomorrow. But sufficient unto the day. Whatever he gave you that morning would get you through that day. And the next morning it would be there again. And the next morning it would be... And I'm glad that we don't necessarily have to go out and scrape the front lawn to get our groceries. But Jeremiah said in Lamentations chapter 3, he said, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. We don't deserve them. Because His compassions fail not. His mercies and His compassions, it says, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So that tells me that whatever I've got to get over today, what he gave me this morning is enough. And however I let him down tomorrow, when I get up in the morning, there's mercy for me. Let me tell you, let me digress for a moment and talk about grace. Grace is one of the most horribly misunderstood subjects in Christianity. Grace is often understood to mean that, God, we can't do anything. God gives us grace. We just say, I believe in you, Jesus, and we're on our way to heaven. That's a corruption of Scripture. And I, I could digress for an hour on that, but I won't now. Grace, to understand why we still need grace. If I was to honestly sit down with a, a pen and a pad and say, okay, what are the areas where I'm coming short in my relationship with God? Where are the areas that I'm letting God down or... Or, you know, I'm, I'm not doing what I should be doing. I'm not being the person I should be. I could come up with a list pretty easily. Let me, let me just as a ballpark, let me say I could come up with 50 things. I write a list. I find 50 areas that I know I still need grace in. Now, if I was able to address them all, I'd feel pretty good that I'd tick them all off that list. But then if I asked my family, there might be another 50. Sister Sheila, what are you saying amen for? You're not my family. But they might know some that I don't. But even if I addressed all of their concerns and then there was some magic scanner at the front of the church here, like an airport scanner, a Holy Ghost scanner that you could walk through and the Lord would scan you and get a printout, you'd find there's actually a lot more than you or your family know about. So even when I think I've got it all covered, grace is still there those things that I don't even have a clue about. That's why I still need grace today. Because even on my best day, I'm not reaching the mark. Even on my very best day, I'm not going to get there. And His mercies are new every morning. And so every day when I get up, if I'm honest, I know that even if I think that I'm going to have an Apostle Paul kind of day, I'm not reaching the mark. And so that fresh mercy that's laid out for me that day is there to make up for my shortcomings. 
But if I read the parable about the two debtors, if I choose to withhold forgiveness and not extend mercy, then when I get up the next morning, there might not be anything on the lawn. Because I strangled my brother, I cut off my own forgiveness. Bless the Lord. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, I heard a man make a statement a while back that I, I certainly agree with. He said that offense, when we get offended, it easily leads to false doctrine or people that start believing stuff that they didn't believe before. And I, I thought, yeah, I've seen that happen. I've watched it happen in people's lives, but I didn't really understand why it happened. And while I was praying this morning, I believe the Lord helped me to understand that a little bit more. You see, true doctrine, or in other words, genuine biblical belief, is structured around redemption and forgiveness. That's why we have the word of the Lord. It's all the story of God wanting to redeem us, to extend to us forgiveness. So when I withhold it, and I hold on to offense, I tear down the structure. And then I'm going to be willing to believe something that isn't in the original structure because I don't want to acknowledge the lack in my own life. And we need to be very, very careful. We are in this thing for the long haul. I believe that Jesus is coming back. I believe he could come at any moment. He could come before this service finishes, and you need to be ready for that. But at the same time, I have to approach my walk with God as if you and I are serving Him together tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that. Next month in April, I've been in Perth for 20 years. 20 years. I don't even feel 20 years old. I must do. My son's turning 20 this year. That means I've been going to church with Brother Paul and Sister Pam for 20 years. And we still talk nicely to each other. That's incredible. That's the miraculous power of God, Brother Paul, right there. But the thing is, you walk together with brethren. And when we get over some stuff, it actually brings us closer together. Let's stand together this morning. I deliberately called this message being in the right mind, not being in your right mind. Because the right mind is, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who knew who he was and took it anyhow. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord for a moment. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, just in case... Cass, if you want to come to the piano, please. Just in case you're standing there and thinking, I'm glad he taught that this morning. Brother so-and-so really needs to hear that. Remember when the Lord said that there was a Pharisee that stood on a corner and said, God, you're so blessed to have me. I'm glad I'm not like that filthy publican over there. The scripture says the publican was on his knees and smote his chest and said, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And the Bible says that only one of the two went to his house justified. Be careful. The scripture says, Wherefore let him that standeth, or thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. 
If you've got nothing to forgive anybody for today, worship God. Your turn's coming. <laughs> Your turn is coming. Get in line, take a number. You will have that opportunity. And then we'll find out, Lord, do I want to keep the flow coming to me? None of us are meant to be cul-de-sacs. We're all thoroughfares. It's supposed to flow in and flow out. Come in and flow out. The Spirit of the Lord Bible says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. I was chatting with somebody just the other day about the, the diverse manner of cultures we have here. Never take that for granted. This mix that you see in this building is not possible for any extended period of time without the Holy Ghost. We'd all be like, well, that's just that kind of people and they don't trust that kind of people and those kind of people always like this and crazy nonsense. But by the Spirit of God, we are first His children. Secondly, whatever your passport says. Australian, Congolese, wherever you're from. I'm not going to go through the list. I'll extend the service far too long. But we are first His children. I am first a citizen of heaven. I am first a child of God. And whether my mother tongue is English or something else, you are my brother and my sister. And so I'm going to open the altar this morning. If you'd like to come and pray, this is where we get honest with ourselves. And say, God, help me to have a right mind. Let that mind be in me. You know what has to happen? Sometimes... You've got to pray that prayer again <laughs> and again. It doesn't always just come in one, one trip to the altar, but sometimes it's the beginning of a process where we say, God, change my heart, change my mind. Help me to be in the same mind with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's worship him this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.